The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Whatever they are or aren't doing, they're looking at key players that are at the center of a lot of the activity that is being investigated criminally. So the concern is if they are not, because clearly they're leading these in, in a couple of areas for both Clark and Eastman, they're out ahead of any you know, investigator search of that. How are they coordinating with the criminal investigators? I'm Quinta Jurassic, senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. Monday, August 1st, 2022. There's been a great deal of debate recently about how to understand the apparently slow pace of the Justice Department's investigation into January 6th, particularly into Donald Trump's personal role in the insurrection. On Lawfare, Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes made the case that everyone should just chill out and let the department do its work. While Executive Editor Natalie Orpet and I argued that it's reasonable to push harder for the department to understand its particular responsibilities in upholding the rule of law in this unique political moment. After that debate, Ben, Natalie, and I put our heads together with former FBI official Pete Strzok, who's expressed his own skepticism about whether the Justice Department is investigating aggressively enough, to map out some benchmarks for what to look for in the January 6th investigation going forward. We all wrote that up together as a lawfare piece, And then we sat down to talk about it on the podcast. So how will we know if the Justice Department investigation is proceeding aggressively? What signs should worry people hoping for legal accountability for the insurrection? Natalie, Pete, Ben, and I discussed. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 1st. How to evaluate progress in the Justice Department's January 6th investigation. We should note that this podcast was recorded before the New York Times published some new reporting on July 28th about the role of lead prosecutor Thomas Windham in the investigation. Throughout the show, we reference a major report by the Washington Post published on July 26th, which states that prosecutors have asked witnesses testifying before the grand jury about Trump's individual actions before and on January 6th. I want to start with the state of play before the Washington Post story the other night, there was a raging debate going on on Lawfare and off about the state of the investigation and how we should evaluate it. And I want to start just by having everybody here give a sense of where they were in that debate so that we can then 
talk about the set of things we entirely agree on. So Natalie, let's start with you. What was your position in the great lawfare smackdown? Yes. Well, you do like making this sound dramatic. I don't actually think we disagree about all that much. But the the main position that I took and um, Quinta and I agreed enough on to uh, co-author a piece together was largely just in opposition to Ben Wittes. As a human being. <laughs> um, the, the position that um, – I'll speak for myself so Quinta can build. The, the position that I took was – I do not intend to suggest that I understand what has been happening within DOJ, nor what is the appropriate thing that I should be seeing right now, because investigations are complicated. I don't know all the facts. I don't know all of the legal analysis that has gone into this. There's just too, too much that I don't know. The thing that I was concerned about is that we are in a state of our democracy and our public understanding and faith in the rule of law in this country, where silence, I think, is not appropriate. Um, silence from the, the Department of Justice, I should say. I, I think that it was important in my mind to convey that it's an, it's an appropriate time. It's been a year and a half since January 6th to start asking questions, to say, even if I do have faith that DOJ is doing its job, that it's doing it with integrity, I don't know how much it's thinking about how this is different from a normal criminal investigation, for example, of a, a wide-ranging conspiracy. There are a lot of complicated cases out there. This is different. This was an insurrection. This was a threat to the foundation of our democracy. And as a result, the reaction to it from DOJ is inherently a bigger picture issue than simply prosecuting criminals who may have been involved in criminal conduct. So Quinta, where were you? And obviously you and Natalie wrote together, but you do have an independent mind. Where were you in this general subject, DOJ friend or fiend? Right. So as you say, I think Natalie and I agreed that the Justice Department has a sort of moral responsibility to uphold the rule of law, not only by conducting this investigation to the fullest, whatever that looks like, but also to communicate to the public that, you know, it is not unreasonable for them to be asking questions and for the department to understand that it does have a unique and uniquely difficult role to play here in upholding the rule of law. Um, I think I, I might go a little farther than than Natalie, and this this is not in the piece. So this is these are just my own thoughts. Again, before the Washington Post story, I would have said that I was concerned by signs that the Justice Department was perhaps not pursuing questions of Trump's individual culpability as aggressively as I thought was merited. So most notably, there was some reporting in the New York Times that. Uh, the department had not called in Cassidy Hutchinson, Mark Meadows's uh, top aide, before the committee heard from her and that it was really flabbergasted by her testimony that that kind of gave the Justice Department a kick in the pants in terms of how it was thinking about the investigation as a whole. And I think I found that concerning. Again, I want to be, as Natalie said, you know, 
humble about what we can know. We're very much looking, you know, we, we wrote this in the piece, we're kind of looking through a keyhole into a locked room and trying to figure out what's inside. So there's a lot we don't know. But those indications gave me concern. Um, and I, I know, I think that Pete felt similarly. And, and after we hear from him, Ben, I'm, I'm interested to hear your uh, fiery takedown of why we're all wrong. So Pete, uh, you... I don't think wrote a piece about it, but you did tweet a little bit about it, and you uh, certainly had oral communications with us about it. You were, I would say, further out on the limb of concern. Is that fair? I don't know how to judge myself in terms of my place on that limb, certainly with regard to what Quinta just said. I agree. My concern was broadly, I had, you know, for a long time been sort of defending what DOJ may or may not have been doing, what the FBI may or may not have been doing, simply because it is so opaque. And I know from having been on the inside of complex investigations, watching public speculation, watching public frustration in the eye of being extraordinarily busy, you know, kind of understanding that there is to, you know, uh, the points that have been made, a tremendous amount going on that we don't know about it. But I had a growing sense of concern about sort of the urgency and related to that, the resourcing of the investigations that was really sort of tipped in my mind with some New York Times reporting indicating that, again, the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony was new, was surprising. It sort of broke this, you know, implicit sort of code of silence about mentioning Trump's name at the at the upper levels of DOJ. And again, I, you know, they it's in the New York Times, so I'm sure they sourced it to somebody who... Uh, is reliable. It made sense to me that this is somebody in or or around Wyndham's camp um, expressing some frustration about the reluctance of DOJ to move forward. But you know, and just to be clear, who is Wyndham? So Tom Wyndham is a prosecutor who was brought in, uh, and I'm curious to hear one day, and I'm sure we'll probably get some reporting on it. What were the events that caused him to be brought in? What was the decision made well into the investigation that, you know, there's this guy, great reputation, reputation of being very aggressive. We need to bring him in to be and or replace something in the structure that was there. Because you typically, I mean, it's changing coaches in the middle of the season. So something triggered that. I, I'm, I hope to hear about it one day. But it was very, you know, the, the fake electors, yes, they're investigating that. But that was publicly reported on, I think, months and months and months before a case was sort of acknowledged by Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general. So my concern is not that DOJ will not eventually get there. My concern is that the sort of structure of how they might have been thinking about it, um, which Andrew Weissman uh, talked about, a, a prosecutor who was in the Mueller team, he was a general counsel of the FBI, another very, very aggressive prosecutor, talked about rather than this bottom-up approach to have a sort of a hub with all the various spokes coming out from around it, and that hub is centered on Trump. So if you look at it in a bottom-up approach, it can bog things down. And then also a concern about resources. And, you know, we we wrote about this in, in the article, but I, I didn't see, given that this is now, the Attorney General has acknowledged, this is the largest and most consequential investigation in DOJ's history, and I agree with that. And I think most listeners and you know people in America would agree with that, given the facts. I don't see a corresponding sort of, we need more people, we need more resources. 
and you know to the extent they had and you know quinta pointed this out to me a couple of days ago you know lisa monaco did ask for more attorneys to congress and congress denied it so i you know on the one hand that i i had not realized that and that tells me you know congress needs to shut the hell up if they if there is another word about concern about the pace and scope of what doj is doing that ought to be silenced because yes if there's an issue with speed and i think there is you need more resources all right and just to round this out let me give my position again all of this is before the post story the other night but my view was that you all uh, needed to take a Xanax and need like need to remember that complex investigations are well complex and take a lot of time and that uh, the amount of time elapsed given the complexity of this investigation relative to, for example, Watergate is actually quite short and that there is you know, without dismissing any of the issues that you guys and Andrew Weissman and others have raised, I see no reason not to look at this investigation as proceeding at the usual kind of methodical pace that complex investigations do. And I'm, you know, I also have a high degree of confidence in Mara Garland, whom I've, whose career I have watched for, you know, 30 years and whom I don't think of as a, a person who runs sleepy investigations. And so I think that by and large gives a sense of the state of the debate when this post story came out. Quinta, if you could give us a brief summary of to what extent the Post or the ways in which the Post and the other reporting right around the same time. And uh, Natalie, Pete, and I will chime in with as as we think of additional things. But let's give a sense of how the landscape changes by Wednesday evening. Uh, what did we learn? It's a little hard to summarize just because the, the Post reporting, you know, even just that one story from the Post is a incredibly dense, you know, 2,000, 3,000 words. There is a lot packed in there. So I will do my very best. The sort of TLDR version is that prosecutors we know have been questioning witnesses before a grand jury. We'd learned before this post story that two top aides to Vice President Mike Pence, uh, so those are Mark Short and Greg Jacob, uh, had testified before the grand jury. And what the Post reported is that those witnesses were not questioned just about, you know, January 6th generally, but were specifically asked, um, and the Post said, and I quote, that prosecutors asked hours of detailed questions about uh, meetings that Trump convened in the White House, conversations that these people had with Trump and his lawyers, uh, what instructions Trump gave his lawyers and advisors about fake electors and efforts to sort of upend the electoral count. That is significant because previously, while we had known that DOJ was investigating some of those aspects of what happened on January 6th and before, we didn't know that they were specifically looking at what Trump had done and said. And so that is very significant. It's also notable that the Post reported that DOJ investigators received phone records of 
uh, officials, aides in the Trump administration, notably including Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, um, and that they got those records in April. So that, I think, is maybe a, a shot in the arm, Ben, for your everybody just take some deep breaths theory, <laughs> because uh, April, as listeners will recall, is well before the January 6th committee started, um, you know, its blockbuster hearings. And so that might cut against the argument that the Justice Department has kind of been given a kick in the pants by Congress. Um, so all, those are sort of the the main top line things, I think, to keep in mind. There are more. And Ben, I know you had other particular things you wanted to pull out. I think a, a couple other things that are worth noting. There was also a New York Times story that was published shortly before the Post story uh, where the Times obtained emails sent back and forth by members of the Trump campaign and others involved in the scheme to put together fake slates of electors that included them referring to those electors as fake in so many words, uh, saying that they thought that they should maybe use the word alternative instead, smiley face, um, and that is uh, verbatim, and really sort of giving a lot more detail about the mechanics of the fake electors' work and, and, you know, what the goal was, which was in, you know, as stated in these emails, to upend the certification of the electoral vote by providing members of Congress with sort of ammunition with which to call the electoral vote into question. So all of that, I think, is quite significant. Yeah. So I will just add that another thing that we learned here, uh, not from the Post, but from ABC News, was that prosecutors uh, have met with Cassidy Hutchinson. The details of that are still vague, but it's clear that that happened after her testimony, which uh, I think tends – you can read it either way, right? It It supports Ural's anxiety and that it's clear that the the committee beat the FBI to Cassidy Hutchinson. It also uh, does suggest, however, that the FBI is following up, right? And so uh, – and, and in a reasonably timely fashion. So are there other things we've learned in the last few days, Pete and Natalie, that are worth mentioning at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think one, it came up uh, yesterday as well, was the fact that uh, Wyndham, so the again, the prosecutor who is leading at least one or more aspects of the January 6th activities, had sought a search warrant for Eastman's phone, which had been seized, I think, a couple of months ago, maybe one month ago, maybe at this point, by the IG. And that as part of the litigation, Eastman went to court to suppress and uh, the doing anything with his phone and have it returned. And as part of that litigation, the court out in Arizona, I think, or New Mexico, Arizona, I think, ordered that uh, the government respond what they're doing with it, whether or not they're seeking an additional warrant and had a deadline, I think, of either, I think it might have been Tuesday, the 26th. And in that response, the government noted that, in fact, they had sought and obtained a search warrant, again, via Wyndham uh, a couple of weeks ago. So, there is clearly, you know, there's some question that we talk about in the article about the role of the IG and what the IG is or is not doing with regard to interfacing with the rest of the investigative team. But certainly in this case, the investigative team has sought a warrant for the contents of that phone, has set up a filter process, which they've shared with Eastman's attorneys uh, to talk about how they're going to go through all the potentially privileged material on that phone and pass it on. But it was, you know, again, a sign that this critical person, you know, Eastman, who has links to everybody from 
Meadows to Ginny Thomas to, you know, Trump himself and meetings with him is a, a key player that is touches on, you know, almost every player at a senior level. All right. So it is against all that background that the four of us actually before the Post uh, story came out started working on this piece, the theory of which was, hey, we uh, have different instincts about how to evaluate the investigation so far, but the benchmarks that we would use to evaluate the investigation going forward are actually more interesting and they're much less a subject of disagreement. So we came up with uh, eight of them, I think. And let's just talk about them one at a time. So Natalie, why don't you get us started with benchmark number one? Okay, so item number one on our list was looking for additional movement in uh, the cases against John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark. So as a reminder to everyone who has not been um, obsessively following every in and out of January 6th, as we have over at Lawfare, these are the individuals. John Eastman was um, sort of the idea generator of interfering in the um, January 6th proceedings in Congress by having Vice President Pence exercise authority that John Eastman argued that he had to basically reject the electors um, from the states to send things back and have the election overturned. Jeffrey Clark was, was an attorney in the Department of Justice whom Trump had considered and had, in fact, almost installed as acting attorney general, ended up not doing so because the entire leadership of the Department of Justice threatened to resign, but almost installed him as AG because Jeffrey Clark was um, going to be willing to support Trump's various efforts to overturn the election. So these are cases where um, we know there has already been action and Because these individuals are close to Trump, we know specifically that their conduct involved direct communications and likely um, direction from Trump, that moving forward on those cases also means that DOJ would be obtaining a lot more information specifically about Trump's role in um, the conduct that these two individuals are being investigated for. So Quinta, uh, your thoughts on benchmark number one, why is it important Uh, in your judgment? I think Natalie covered most of it. I really do think, you know, Eastman and Clark were sort of these figures who popped up and, you know, generally after the election, the period between the election and January 6th, and had a, a bit of a slapstick quality, maybe. John Eastman was sort of running around promoting these bizarre legal theories, um, calling the Electoral Count Act unconstitutional. Uh, Jeffrey Clark, we we found out about uh, his attempt to instigate a second Saturday night massacre, thanks to some reporting in the New York Times by Katie Benner. And that there was a little bit of, you know, 
the gang that couldn't shoot straight about them. I think it was a little perhaps hard to tell to what extent to take them seriously, to what extent they were acting on behalf of Trump or kind of freelancing. And the more that we have learned about them, and and I think the January 6th committee did a really incredible job in making this clear, the more central um, Eastman in particular seems to have been to this entire project. The committee in particular in the hearing that focused on Pence just produced a lot of testimony about Eastman's role really acting as Trump's lawyer, promoting these legal theories, pushing aggressively for uh, Vice President Mike Pence to act on behalf of those theories. And so that, I think, drives home that Eastman, in a way, may be kind of a, a linchpin of how we understand the story of what happened on the 6th, that he's someone who is involved in the White House conversations, but he's also somebody who is outside the White House and speaking to a range of state legislatures, other people who are friendly with Trump. And so his story sort of runs through the whole thing. Yeah, so I will just add one thing to this this benchmark, which is that it is absolutely impossible to imagine an indictment of Donald Trump without an indictment of Eastman and Clark first. Relating to this conduct, I, I suppose you could get one in in other areas, uh, maybe incitement to, to violence in the context of the insurrection speech. But I think if you're going to – if you're seriously imagining that this investigation eventually leads to Donald Trump, it leads through these two people – And so if you're looking for progress in this investigation, the sign of progress is indictments in these cases, in Giuliani's and Meadows' cases, and those cases are not as close. There's there's not as much signs of active activity, of activity, ongoing activity right now. These are the ones that are absolutely central to the president's conduct after the election and before January 6th across a wide range of areas where we know the investigation is super active. So if you're looking for signs that the investigation is proceeding, these cases are the canary in the coal mine. Uh, so Pete, you, you've, from your inside experience on investigations, do you think that hard statement of, of the, the, the case is, is fair? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and, and Garland, has has very specifically talked about the need to make sure that everything is done absolutely right. I mean, this will be just as it is the largest and most consequential investigation in DOJ's history. It is going to be attacked unlike any other investigation, I think, in DOJ's history. So when you have something that's already hard and you put an overlay of something that is going to be extraordinarily examined, I, I, I think hard is absolutely a, a fair characterization of this entire process. Okay. This brings us to uh, benchmark number two, which is a benchmark that uh, was really brought to all three of our attention by you, Pete. And so I want you to walk us through it. Why is it that we should have our eye on the involvement of the inspector general and start by giving us some background about why and how the Justice Department Inspector General came to be involved in this case in the first place, and why that gives you concerns. Yeah, so the question is, I mean, certainly the it has come up that the Inspector General 
first he made an announcement very shortly after January 6th, within the months afterwards, that he was going to be investigating the conduct of the Department of Justice employees and personnel in the context of the events surrounding January 6th. Now, the IG typically, they, they do have you know sworn law enforcement officers. They can conduct criminal investigations, but their primary bread and butter mission is to go out and conduct reviews. And we've seen, you know, the DOJ's Inspector General Mike Horowitz do this in great, you know, detail, whether it was looking at the uh, investigation of Clinton's use of a private email server, whether it was the FBI's conduct in the, you know, the Russian interference elections. And there are these very exhaustive sort of administrative looks. And so for him to announce that, to look at what DOJ may have played a role was a very logical sort of mission for the IG to do. Now, as time has evolved and some of the first things we saw with both Clark and Eastman, uh, Eastman having his phone seized, Clark having his house searched and electronics seized, both of those, it appears, were led by agents from the inspector general. So the question becomes, okay, are they doing that as part of this broad criminal investigation into January 6th? Are they doing that investigation sort of independently as part of their review of the department's activities, which again, that review is not a criminal review if they find allegations like they do all the time. If they come across information or allegations that laws may have been broken, they will refer those out to the Department of Justice. But whatever they are or aren't doing, they're looking at key players that are at the center of a lot of the activity that is being investigated criminally. So the concern is if they are not, because clearly they're leading these in, in a couple of areas for both Clark and Eastman, they're out ahead of any, you know, investigator search of that. How are they coordinating with the criminal investigators? Are they acting as criminal investigators? If they are, they need to be integrated. Part of the issue is if they're not, if they're just doing this review you don't necessarily want them too tightly integrated because they're doing an administrative review. They can go out and do things like compel DOJ personnel to interview with them and waive, you know, essentially that provides an immunity that, you know, they can say to somebody, look, you have to talk to us as a DOJ employee and answer the questions. But what that means is you can't use those statements certainly against somebody who's providing them, but it creates all kinds of challenges in the context of a criminal investigation. So all of this gets into a really potentially messy interplay between the IG, much as the January 6th committee, is looking at many of the same players that are of interest to the January 6th investigators. And so, you know, that that question of what are they doing? How are they coordinating? Are they coordinating? Because again, remember, you know, Mike Horowitz doesn't report to Chris Ray. He reports to the senior leadership at DOJ. So to the extent you have any sort of coordination issues or any conflict, the first place that comes to a point is is probably going to be a discussion between the senior leadership of the FBI and Mike Horowitz, which isn't ideal if you're trying to sort of like efficiently run a day-to-day investigation. So a lot of questions out there. I think, again, the that second search warrant that Wyndham sought for Eastman's phone is very illustrative of perhaps this difference of mission and mandate. But it's something in my mind that bears watching because, again, there's potential grounds for conflict or, or mischief in the terms of problems created in the context of a criminal prosecution. All right. So all of that is really helpful, but I want to distill it 
to a benchmark that we can be looking for going forward. So Quinta, if you take Pete's concern and you say, all right, so what's a benchmark over the next few months? What does it look like if the concern has been substantially alleviated and we're in good shape? And what does it look like if Pete's concern is a real problem going forward? How does the world look different for people who are watching the investigation? I actually think we got a great example of a benchmark uh, while we were, in fact, writing this piece. I think while I was drafting this section, which is what Pete mentioned. This is the the warrant issued by Wyndham, who's in the uh, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, for Eastman's phone, because previously, again, as Pete had also mentioned, that phone had been seized by agents working for OIG. And so that, for me, was very significant. I think it's a good example of sort of, you know, if you're watching this closely, something that immediately leaped out at me, but might not be apparent to someone who, for, you know, many extremely reasonable reasons, uh, hasn't had the time to familiarize themselves with, you know, all of the different players here. That struck me as quite significant because at least it indicates that the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, which we know is is running a lot of the January 6th investigation, is looking at Eastman as well as OIG. And so there is at least some kind of coordination, sharing of information there. Um, I imagine we could see, you know, similar signs of that going forward, perhaps regarding Clark. As Pete says, though, I mean, I, I don't I certainly don't want to say that the fact that Wyndham is also going to be looking at Eastman's phone should alleviate all of our concerns here about potential lack of coordination. But I do think that the absence of this sign would have made me nervous. And the fact that we did get that court filing makes me feel a little bit more confident that there is some degree of coordination happening. Yeah. So I want to try to zoom out here, Natalie, because I have a feeling that the poor listener who doesn't have a lot of sophistication about the OIG versus the FBI versus the versus uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office is like their head spinning right now. So zoom out and tell us, like, what are you looking for here that will make you feel better and what would make you feel worse? Sure. So I think maybe a, an oversimplified way of thinking about it is – OIG, given what its traditional role is, that's not to say it's necessarily the only thing it's doing here, but its traditional role is much narrower than what a criminal component of DOJ is typically responsible for doing. So what we would be concerned about is if the investigation of Eastman and Clark stayed only within OIG, and that may be an indication that the extent of the investigation was narrow and targeted and may not get to Donald Trump or others who were involved with this. And it may be limited, for example, to only certain types of conduct that they were involved in, but not sort of bigger storylines that are out there in which they intersected. So what, what we're looking for in seeing coordination between OIG and other criminal investigators is for someone to be taking all of the information that OIG is getting with respect to Eastman and Clark in particular and making connections between those dots and other parts of the investigation. So, for example, you know, Eastman went to this meeting with Donald Trump. 
Who did Donald Trump meet with before that and after that? What follow-up calls did Donald Trump have after meeting with Eastman? How does that relate to the campaign to pressure state legislators, to pressure Mike Pence? Um, There are a lot of different storylines going here, and we want to make sure that someone is looking at all of them. And looking at them all as a holistic picture, not as discrete storylines where the IG stays just within the Justice Department. All right. So I want to talk about benchmark number three. And I know of no person more obsessed with the obstruction uh, issues dating from the beginning of the Trump administration than Quinta Jurassic. Uh So Quinta, talk us through your uh, throwback to volume two of the Mueller report. Yeah, I don't know whether to be flattered or insulted there. <laughs> so what, what Ben is referring to is that the January 6th committee uh, in two hearings has pointed to concerns that folks in the Trump camp are attempting to influence witnesses. Uh, so at first, uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney flagged messages that were sent to a witness uh, who was later reported to be Cassidy Hutchinson herself, and that those messages were sent by an intermediary of Mark Meadows, essentially telling her, uh, and I'll I'll just read the quote, that he, which uh, was reportedly Meadows, wants me to let you know that he's thinking about you. He knows that you're loyal, and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. Then there, at the end of uh, another hearing, Cheney alleged that Trump personally had called a witness uh, who notably did not pick up and reported this attempted contact to the Justice Department. So that, that second outreach is a little fuzzier because obviously since the, the witness who's remained anonymous didn't pick up, we don't know, you know what it was that Trump might have said. But as Ben is referencing, to me, that leapt out as echoing conduct that's described in excruciating detail in the second volume of the Mueller report. So listeners might remember the second volume has to do with obstruction of the Russia investigation by Trump. And among the number of instances of obstruction that Mueller identifies are instances of potential witness tampering, attempting to convince potential witnesses not to cooperate with investigators, attempting to slime them and make their lives miserable when they did, including by going after them in public, reaching out to their lawyers, uh, sometimes in language that is very reminiscent of the language that was reportedly used in outreach to Hutchinson, sort of this coded, you know, we're thinking of you. I think one one such message, which I believe was sent to Michael Cohen or his lawyer, read something along the lines of, you know, you have friends in high places. So this seemed to me very familiar as a sort of mode of operation by Trump and the people around him. And that's particularly significant because, of course, uh, Mueller did not charge Trump, nor did he come to a conclusion about whether or not Trump had violated the law. But he sets out a great deal of evidence and he sort of walks through the different criteria that he would use to evaluate whether a crime had been committed. And in these instances of obstruction, he seems to come down on the side of saying, yeah, this was probably criminal. Um, And so I think you can kind of walk through the same factors that Mueller looks at when you're you're thinking about this potential obstruction before the committee, because we don't have all the evidence, um, you know, the Mueller report, there's pages and pages and pages on this. We, we just have what the committee has told us, and it's not much. Um, it's harder to say, of course, whether this is 
outright witness tampering, but it's certainly something that, you know, if I were in the Justice Department, I would want to be investigating. So far, I don't believe we have heard anything to that effect. We do know that the committee has informed the department of these instances. I at least have not seen any public indication that the department is pursuing that. So if we do get information, you know, any kind of suggestion that investigators are really pushing on that, that I think will be significant uh, because it will indicate that, you know, as with the Mueller investigation, the, the department is not only interested in what happened in the run up to January 6th, but also in efforts to keep them from finding out and keep Congress from finding out what happened. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Pete, so you were involved in some of the issues that the Mueller investigation prosecuted as process crimes, uh, lying to the Bureau, in in one case to you, as well as obstruction matters in the early days of the investigation. How plausible do you think it is that the department can in, be investigating this stuff in stealth mode? That is, they've received the referral, they're looking at it, but there would be no visible signs of it. Or conversely, is this the kind of thing where, like the Mueller investigation's obstruction probes, you can't really do it quietly for all that long, and therefore it's kind of a useful benchmark because if they're investigating obstruction, uh, they will leave footprints sooner rather than later? I think you have to, I mean, there's only a few sources of information if you're going to talk about, you know, certainly witness tampering. There's going to be the person who received the communication, the person who initiated it, and anybody they might have routed it through. The tamperer and the tamperee. Right. And, you know, in this case, you know, Mark Meadows generated the message to Cassidy Hutchinson, which was relayed by a third party. And so you've got the people involved and then you've got the records of their communications. You've got phone calls, you've got emails, potentially you have texts. And so whether or not you have, you can get those voluntarily, whether or not you can meet the standard to get a search warrant to obtain, certainly if they're written communications, that there aren't a lot of places you can go. Now, if you're talking to somebody, that's obviously very alerting. If you can get to the place where you have sufficient information to go get a warrant, you might be able to do that quietly, but I don't know how you get that level of information to establish problem cause without alerting somebody. Now, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson has apparently gone in. I find it, you know, I would be shocked if she was not asked by the government, you know, tell us about these communications. Who was the intermediary? I, she knows that phone well. I'm sure I would hope the government and prosecutors know who that is. But, you know, this is a hard, hard crime to charge when it comes to witness tampering. I mean, you know, it, it, just look at the what 
Quinta was talking about, you know, he's, he's sure you'll do the right thing. Well, you know, there's clearly a wink and a nudge there, but on its face, you know, do the right thing as a government servant who took an oath of allegiance to the constitution and do the right thing means stand up and tell the truth. So, uh, you know, showing to a level of beyond a reasonable doubt that there was an intent to corruptly influence somebody's, you know, statement is pretty tough. And again, going back to the Mueller investigation, we saw various attorneys in and around the Trump world reaching out to, to Flynn's attorneys and saying, you know, let him know the president still holds him in high regard. And if he's going to, you know, cooperate, well, we need to know because there are potential national security issues here. So this isn't this isn't new behavior in and around Trump. But, you know, Mueller didn't prosecute that behavior. And I think looking at that very similar or perhaps even more egregious outreach, the fact that that wasn't prosecuted. I think argues for caution as to whether or not anything we've seen to date will be prosecuted either. All right. So I'm going to take the fourth benchmark myself, uh, at least to get the conversation started. So one of the factors that I think has driven a lot of the anxiety about this investigation is the conscious or subconscious instinct on the part of a lot of people that Garland's metaphor is wrong and that, you know, Garland is starting with the idea that this is a complex, uh, like an organized crime investigation, right? You start at the bottom of the pyramid and you you build your foundational cases, you flip people and you kind of work your way up to the more complicated cases as you go up the pyramid. And I think part of the anxiety that drives criticism like Andrew Weissman's, uh, I mean, his, he's quite explicit. Garland is, you know, should be using a hub and spokes model rather than a bottoms up model, right? He's actually challenging the metaphor. And I think what lies behind this is the worry that in the pyramid, there may be really bad criminal conduct that's provable at the top that just doesn't have any connective tissue to the prosecutable cases at the bottom. So you can spend two years prosecuting really bad cases of January 6th uh, rioters, and you can convict them, you can flip them, you can garner their cooperation, but they're not going to be able to tell you about the fake electors scheme. They're not going to be able to tell you about whether the president was actually trying to have Mike Pence killed. They're not going to Tell, be able to tell you about the Georgia call, right? Because the top of the pyramid is sufficiently unconnected or from the bottom of the pyramid that one aggressive prosecution in one area won't bring you to the other area. So benchmark number four, as I kind of imagined it, was we want to see evidence that that there is this connective tissue uh, and we'll get to the alternative to that, which is benchmark number five. But benchmark number four, like it seems to me you have a lot more confidence in this investigation if you know that I, I'm going to depart from the pyramid for a minute, you know, that the you've built the legs. They've they've got really good legs on this on this body. You've got a, a, a good you know, set of hips and you've got a head, but whether there's a torso in between, we just like, you want to see evidence that there's connective tissue between the different parts of the body. 
Uh, and so my, my proposed or idea of a benchmark here is you want to see some evidence that they're really investigating in this interstitial space where, for example, was the White House in touch with the rioters? Is there, is there evidence of coordination at some level between this bottom of the pyramid and the top of the pyramid? Yeah, and I think actually a bigger concern with the pyramid is we we do not have this indication anymore because we've learned more. But early on in the investigation, we knew that DOJ was really prioritizing the rioters. So they have made incredible progress prosecuting, I think we're over 840 criminal defendants in connection with the attack on the Capitol right now. They've made incredible progress. The concern with the pyramid was if that's the bottom of the pyramid and they're working their way up, does that mean that the only thing that they're investigating is the attack on the Capitol? And does that mean that if, as they're working their way up, they don't, for example, find any direct communications between Trump insiders and the Oath Keepers, for example, or the Proud Boys or other groups that were really organized going into January 6th, and and that are now many of them being prosecuted for very serious crimes like seditious conspiracy. If the investigation does not turn up those connections, does that mean that Trump is not going to be investigated for anything else, and therefore he's just off, um, off the hook? So the concern with the pyramid was not just about the interstitial connections, but it was also what is the scope of what they're looking for with respect to Trump? I do think it's noteworthy that this, I think, was one of the big gaps in what the select committee was able to show. Um, I know, Ben, that you and Roger Parloff, who's been very, very closely watching the sort of lower level criminal prosecutions in the January 6th cases for lawfare, were really keeping an eye out to see whether there was some evidence that the committee was going to be able to show of coordination, communication between Trump or the White House or people in Trump's orbit and uh, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, both groups, members of whom have been indicted for a seditious conspiracy. And the committee really didn't show that. I think it was a notable, I'm not, I don't want to say whole because it's not that they promised they would show it and they didn't. It just wasn't part of the story they were telling. But it was notable that it wasn't there. And I think that if the department is able to show that, if we get some kind of indication that, you know, investigators are looking at, say, communications between Trump and Stuart Rhodes, or who's the leader of the Oath Keepers, that would be hugely significant and I think would really break new ground. So, Quinta, this brings us to benchmark number five, which is your elaboration on this point. When I framed the, hey, I want to see the connective tissue of the pyramid, you were like, well, wait a minute. The other possibility is that they could investigate the top of the pyramid without the connective tissue. So that leads to benchmark number five. What is it and what looks good here and what looks bad here? Right. So so I think what, what you mean by, you know, investigate the top without the bottom is that there's a lot of stuff that we know happened near or around Trump or that Trump did that seems quite bad and potentially criminal, irrespective of whether it is connected to the folks on the bottom, as it were. 
So in particular, uh, this is an example that Natalie and I pointed to in our piece on lawfare. There is the question of Trump's phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asking Raffensperger to find him 11,000 votes in Georgia so he could win Georgia's electoral votes. There is uh, the question of whether there's any investigation into potential criminal incitement by Trump during his ellipse speech on January 6th, which I know is something that Natalie has thought a great deal about. There's uh, an opinion by uh, one uh, federal judge, David Carter, whose opinion that the committee loves. They have cited this again and again and again throughout the hearings um, where Carter ruled this is in relation to uh, the committee's effort to get some emails from John Eastman that it was more likely than not that Trump and Eastman had committed crimes. And what Carter pointed to specifically was potential um, obstruction of an official proceeding uh, by Trump and Eastman under 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2, which is a charge that has also been leveled against many of the individual rioters, as well as potentially 18 U.S.C. 371, uh, which is conspiracy to defraud the United States. So is the Justice Department looking at those violations? What about, you know, seditious conspiracy from the top down? That's not a definitive list by any means. um, But I think it indicates, you know, if you want to think about this as a pyramid, how many different ways you could move from the top down. If you want to think about it as a hub and spoke, how many potential spokes there are. We now have some indication that the thanks to the post reporting that the department seems to be looking into specifically Trump's efforts to pressure Vice President Mike Pence into upending the electoral vote certification. So that's one spoke, as it were. But there are a lot more here, too. Yeah. And I think to put sort of a different metaphor on it, the the other issue is that starting from the bottom and working your way up also evokes different investigative threads. So, you know, it's entirely possible to still do a bottom up approach. But if if the crime that you're looking at, for example, is not the violent attack on the Capitol, which for which the bottom of the pyramid would be all of the rioters that are under criminal investigation and prosecution right now. If the crime that you were focusing on was the scheme, for example, to pressure state legislatures to um, take actions to um, change the electors before they sent them to Congress, then the bottom level of that pyramid would be a different group of people. So you could still do a bottom-up investigation, but it would not be the same people that we have known are under investigation. And and we're more recently getting evidence that that those other threads, you know, the pressure on state legislators, the pressure on Vice President Pence, the call to Raffensperger, um, although that's under investigation in Georgia, I don't think we've seen indications that that's specifically under investigation by DOJ. But that there are there is movement in other in these other threads. Yeah, I think at least to my mind, the broad concern here is that you don't want a situation where you single-mindedly focus on the overt crimes, i.e., the the rioter crimes. And as a result, raucous criminality at the at the top that just doesn't have just doesn't connect well to that. And the sort of larger pattern of which that riot is the most visible part, but by no means the only part, you want to make sure somebody's looking at the forest here. 
And there are a number of ways to do that. You can focus on the connective tissue of the pyramid. But if we don't get a sense, I think the benchmark here is if you get a sense that all of these different areas are being looked at. And by the way, we haven't mentioned, but we, we like I actually feel really strongly about this. I think there's a, like a question of whether the president was trying to get the vice president killed. And, you know, the last hearing where he is warned about the state of the vice president and he just doesn't give a shit, right? I, I don't know what criminal offenses that – but this is somebody who swore an oath to preserve and protect the constitution and faith, make sure the laws are faithfully executed and you decline to do that in a circumstance in which you know armed people are attacking your vice president – I want to understand how that lines up against the criminal law. I don't – is it conspiracy to – I don't know if you can have a conspiracy to commit manslaughter. But, it's, but it's, 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 a, it's a super weird situation and you just want confidence that they're thinking about it in terms of the bizarre range of fact patterns that exist. I think what really concerns me and it goes to the sense of urgency is everybody – and I'm worried, including the attorney general, seems to be melding together a question of whether or not we charge somebody with whether or not we decide to open an investigation. And those are wildly different decision points. I mean, as an investigator, the decision to bring charges is like at the very end, right? Then you go off and you got to build your case and make your case. But if you have a federal judge in March saying the preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, was that Trump was involved. You know, if you're Merrick Garland saying, well, we got to be careful because we've got to build a case that proves proof beyond a reasonable doubt and someone we'll get there if we get there. That's a completely different question than when a federal judge says it is more likely than not that Trump engaged in criminal behavior. Is that a su sufficient standard to open an investigation in the FBI into that conduct? OK, so I want to ask you a question in your capacity. You're the guy who wrote the predication memo for the Russia investigation. I think you're uniquely qualified to answer this question. If you were still at the FBI and you had uh, just on the question of the president, did the president engage in a pattern of activity intended to uh, or with the proximate possibility of it resulting in the death of the vice president? Is there enough evidence there to open an investigation? Yes. Now, the question is, do you need, does it really matter, though? Well, I mean, it depends how much you care if Mike Pence survives, right? <laughs> no, I mean, th th there's enough to open an investigation. I think the question is whether or not you, on Trump himself, the question is whether or not you can conduct that investigative activity under the umbrella of a different sure. already existing case, right? Right. But, but, but. Are you talking just Pence? The threat Well, I'm Pence? talking about an antecedent point here, which is. I have said this point to a number of people and people treat it as rhetoric, but I mean it really literally like, like I agree with you as a, as a functional matter, you might not predicate a specific investigation on this point. You fold it into a larger investigation of a pattern of conduct. But, you know, if, if this were a standalone pattern of activity, the FBI, this falls in the FBI's lap. There's a lot of evidence that the president didn't at least didn't give a shit if the vice president gave, got killed. I mean, I think important context here for for listeners who might not be familiar is that, and Pete, please correct me on here. The uh, 
requirements for predicating an investigation are not, you know, extremely high, right? We're, we're not asking for anything near the standard that, you know, we might think of when it comes to actually prosecuting a case. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, and so those procedures now, certainly if it comes to Trump, would have to be approved in writing by the attorney general. That is a policy that Barr introduced that Garland signed off and adopted as well that I think makes sense because we were really, you know, up until Trump, there the Bureau hadn't been in anyone's recent memory in the position of trying to figure out what the additional procedures should be on opening a case on the president of the United States. But again, this goes back, this is not, because an investigation is open, that does not mean anybody says this person should be charged with a crime. As, as Jim Baker, the former general counsel of the FBI once said, an investigation is a question. You open an investigation to ask questions to determine what happened. Maybe that leads to probable cause that a crime was committed. More often than not, it doesn't. But to sit there and this, again, what, what bugs me is, Ben, to your question about Trump threatening Pence. Well, what plays a role in that? Well, certainly these alleged discussions between the Secret Service the night before on January 5th, that there was danger to the vice president. Certainly the conversations about Trump saying, take down all the magnetometers. They're not here to hurt me. You know, he didn't say they're not here to hurt anyone. All these things go to the question of whether or not Trump intended harm or through negligence, you know, encouraged harm to Mike Pence. Nobody's talking about whether or not he should be charged. The question we ought to be talking about is, is that a reasonable thing to investigate? And in my mind, you know, the answer is clearly yes. So uh, again, we, we don't know. We shouldn't know if things were going well. But if that was going on, I would hope at some point, or not hope, I would expect to see at some point in the course of the Bureau getting information, doing interviews, seeking text messages, seeking emails, that something like that would start to seep out. And, and we've seen nothing, no indication of that. The reason urgency matters is at some point, memories fade, data gets deleted, the Secret Service decides to dump all their damn comms, you know, the, the, the month after January 6th. And it isn't the kind of thing that, oh, it doesn't matter whether we look at this in a month, in a year, in five years. It matters. You want to always do your investigation as close to the time of the events in question as you can. And to simply say, oh, we'll get to it when we get there isn't the right answer for an investigation. It may be for deciding whether to prosecute or not, but not for opening investigation. All right. So we have three more benchmarks to get through and we are we have already gone a long time. So quick benchmarks, quick answers. All right, Pete, talk about the Lost Boys cases and why uh, we care about them. And Lost Boys, of course, include Lost Girls. Right. So the Lost Boys and Lost Girls include people like Rudy Giuliani, who had a ton of his electronics seized last year. Uh, it appears as part by SDNY, uh, the Southern District in New York. It appears relating to Ukraine-type activities, presumably Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman and that whole crew, but maybe other things. They also include uh, Sidney Powell, who it appears had business records, uh, either subpoenaed and or seized as part of fundraising and uh, malfeasance with regard to fundraising she might have engaged with. And finally, Matt Gates. you know, there's a uh, allegedly he may be of interest in a um, sex trafficking and uh, crimes against children case down in Florida. The reason those are all important is while not related to January 6th, those cases provide a bunch of potential positive things or useful things to the to January 6th investigators. 
One, if any of those people are facing criminal exposure because of those investigations, that can be used to flip them. In other words, cooperate with us fully and we'll seek reduced charges. Two, the material and information that's been seized in those other cases, you know, just as Wyndham went and got a second search warrant for Eastman's phones, I hope Wyndham has gone and got search warrants for Rudy's phones and electronic devices up in New York to look at those devices for things relating to January 6th. And finally, Matt Gates, you know, any same same thing to the extent he is facing any sort of criminal exposure the prospect of him cutting a deal to avoid potential jail and talk about what was going on in the role of Congress and all this would be extraordinarily valuable. I think that's right. I think the other thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, there is sort of a, you know, as Natalie and I wrote about, there is this question not only of is the rule of law being upheld by the Justice Department, but do people broadly perceive it as being upheld? And when you have a situation where high profile politically connected figures like Rudy Powell Gates are reportedly under investigation for conduct that in some cases seemed quite egregious and those investigations kind of melt away, there is an ambient public sense that, you know, these people are getting away with something, that this is a system where people who are powerful and important enough are above the law. And that's corrosive in exactly the same way that a failure to investigate Trump when all this evidence on the table is corrosive. All right, Natalie, this brings us to to the second Pete Strzok special among the, the benchmarks, but I'm going to have you start us with it. Resources. Uh, how do we use resources as a benchmark? Yeah, so I think um, it, it's it's probably pretty self-explanatory, but we are we have talked time and again about how complicated these investigations are. And I'll I'll just say as an example, you know, I think for a lot of people looking at the riot, um, the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, you know, the impression is, oh, my gosh, there's so much evidence there. There's video from every direction. There's social media. Um, that's all true. And so that's very helpful in prosecuting individuals. On the other hand, it's an incredible amount of data to get through and to be able to actually translate that um, evidence into admissible evidence for the purpose of prosecuting people is just a tremendous amount of labor. So we know that um, DOJ and the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. has been working very hard on those investigations. Um, we know that there are all of these other um, investigations that are that are going on um, outside of the context of the immediate attack on the Capitol. So you just need people to be able to be doing all of this work. And it's, you know, it, it's a lot of information is known publicly, but that's not the same as being able to comprehensively gather information in a manner that will be admissible in court um, for the purpose of prosecuting individuals. It, that takes a tremendous amount of labor. Um, as we mentioned earlier, um, we know that Dagmonico had requested additional resources, that con which Congress actually rejected. Um, so if we are to see going forward that DOJ is able to allocate more resources to these investigations, um, and particularly if there's any way to know in the course of doing that whether the, um, the resources are being allocated in a way that suggests different threads of the investigation are progressing, which we might be able to garner, for example, by the types of people and, and their backgrounds that are being assigned – that will be an indication that that DOJ is really digging in. 
Pete, you uh, told me a story once uh, not too long ago about when you were running the uh, Clinton email investigation, how Comey approached uh, the resourcing of that. Can you tell us that story and what do we know about the way Chris Ray has approached resourcing this investigation? Uh, sure. So from time to time, uh, you know, at the beginning and middle, for sure, Director Comey would occasionally ask you know, my partner and I, what do you need more people? Do you need more resources? And the point in doing that was it was clear, one, that if we did, that he would make sure that happened. And there are a couple of times where we needed, you know, whether it was people or particular specialists where we got them assigned. But I think he wanted to ensure, one, that it was being done as well and as quickly as possible. And two, the way you do that is it has to come from the top. You know, if I'm at the bottom, if I'm an investigator, if I'm a squad supervisor and I say I need more people because I'm helplessly behind in reviewing all this video evidence, you know, I can scream at the moon and that's not going to change much. You need, you know, even the head of a field office is going to potentially face a tough time if they're going into headquarters fighting for more resources against the other 55 heads of other FBI field offices. So that sort of prioritization has to come from the top. And the goal, I, I think, I don't want to speak for Director Comey, but we got to a place where we were able to tell him, hey, look, the limitations on pace and speed at this point are independent of resources. You know, it is it just, you can't speed up the way a, you know, a computer processes a seized hard drive. You can't speed up the time it takes for Verizon to turn around uh, phone records. I, we don't know what Director Ray is or isn't doing. I would assume he is a very bright man, cares deeply about the FBI and the mission of the FBI. I have to believe he is conveying a similar sort of urgency about the investigation. But then the question becomes, all right, so, you know, one, we do see visible indicia of the Bureau being behind. Certainly, I think it was Judge McFadden was, you know, threatening a, a number of cases of January 6th defendants if they were not, if discovery was not produced in time. And so the question becomes, one, if you had more resources, could you put them to use? And that two, if you have put additional resources on January 6th, where are those resources coming from? What were they doing before? Were they working healthcare fraud or organized crime or MS-13? But, you know, it is a investigative resources are a zero-sum game. If you're going to add to a project the biggest in the FBI's history, you're necessarily taking them from somewhere else. So, you know, those are questions that I think can be answered. And then the sort of the, as a result of that, where's the FBI going in front of Congress, like Lisa Monaco did and saying, we need more investigators, more agents, more analysts, more forensic experts, because you can't, you know, these people all have to get hired. They have to go through Quantico. They have to go through training. You can't just suddenly turn on the spigot. So that, that is a, I think, an area of opacity that we don't know what the resource issues are, if any, but I, the things that we do see give me some concern that there's a resource issue there. All right, Quinta, the last benchmark is a joint effort that we made to try to resolve the question of could the Justice Department say more? And uh, we kind of decided that, well, hey, there is this really famous investigation that said more, and here we're not talking about mid-year exam, but we're talking about Crossfire Hurricane, where you know the director of the FBI testifies before Congress. Yeah, we have an investigation 
And uh, we tried to model a statement after the statement that Jim Comey used in March of 2017. So what could Merrick Garland do on the speaking tour side that would help uh, you, and for that matter, me, uh, feel like they are actually thinking holistically about this? So before I, I begin, I should explain that you know, for those who have been keeping track of Garland's public statements, he's been pretty cagey about what he said publicly. And, you know, to his credit, he's explained that he's doing that intentionally, that uh, in his words, a central tenet of the rule of law is that we do not do our investigations in public. He has said, as as Pete has said, that this is uh, one of the most and now the most complex investigations the Justice Department has ever engaged in, and that the department, you know, must hold accountable every person who's criminally responsible for January 6th. That's a, that's a quote. But he hasn't, you know, come out and given a clear description of what the investigation looks like. And it is worth noting that even though... As Garland said, you know, the Justice Department doesn't usually talk about ongoing investigations. There are exceptions to that that are explicitly stated in the department's internal policies called the Justice Manual, um, among them instances where, and I quote, the community needs to be reassured that the appropriate law enforcement agency is investigating. So we put our heads together and drafted up a little statement uh, that Garland could read that we think is accurate based on the public reporting modeled on Comey's statement to Congress in, in spring 2017 announcing the Russia investigation. So I'll just read what we've we've written for Garland. And do your best Merrick Garland impersonation yeah. when you do Merrick, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do an impersonation. I've decided that the public interest is served by making clear that the Department of Justice is investigating efforts to prevent the peaceful transition of power following the 2020 election. This includes whether anyone in the Trump campaign or in government service at that time participated in such efforts. Because this is an open, ongoing investigation, I cannot say more about what we are doing and whose conduct we are examining. But our investigative activity includes, but is not limited to, the hundreds of already indicted and already completed criminal cases, other activity investigated and disclosed by Congress and the press, allegations that have surfaced in civil litigation, and matters investigated by publicly announced internal Justice Department probes. Pete, you were at the Justice Department, at the FBI, running the investigation at the time Jim Comey gave the relevant statement. Do you see any reason why Merrick Garland couldn't give a statement like this? I, no, but I don't think he needs to. I mean, I, I think in this case, I the utility of this based on what has already been said, I, I see is th- th- there when Comey made that statement, there had not been sort of these increasingly detailed sort of cagey statements to, I think, Prinda described them. But it, for this, I mean, and again, it's probably displaying a little bias from my background of being on the inside, not the outside. I'm content if would be content if he never made a statement like this and the extent we got updates were vigorous and sort of occasional detailed uh, indictments and complaints that tell the story along the way. I'll just add one thing to this, which is to say the the fact that um, the attorney general and actually the deputy attorney general as well have made statements um, vague as they are, as Quinta described, is actually very recent. There was a very, very prolonged period where we were hearing nothing from DOJ leadership. Um, so I think our um, perspective on this has actually shifted a little bit. But I'll just uh, circle back to the theme that um, Quinta and I really focused in on on our in our article from 
um, a week or two ago, which is that the fact of the matter is that as much as I respect the positions um, that that Ben and Pete are articulating and I share and I know Quinta shares to some degree too, that DOJ is working and when it works, it has to do so quietly and that this is the way that investigations must proceed. It is also the case that the Department of Justice and more broadly the public sentiment about the stability and viability of our democracy is under serious threat right now. And so this is an occasion to sort of take a step back and think carefully about the extent to which DOJ should be operating in terms of its public messaging in exactly the same way as it might for any other circumstance or whether it has more of an affirmative duty to reassert its role in preserving or one might say actually reasserting or restoring a sense of the rule of law. We are going to leave it there. Natalie Orpet, Quinta Jurassic, Pete Strzok, thank you all for joining us today and for collaborating on this behemoth of a piece. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, look out for our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, titled The Aftermath. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and our audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>